0: This is a humble man recording. Scano, Sego, Ani, you're listening to the Red Road Podcast with Courtney Sky and Hayden King. Hi, Courtney. <laughs> Hi, Hayden. Oh,
1: man.
0: Yeah, nice to. Well, you're acting like we haven't talked in the past year,
1: <laughs> it has been a year.
0: It's been, oh, yeah, it's been 54 weeks.
1: I mean, since... actually, it's been a year since we've seen each other.
0: Yeah, that's wild.
1: It's so wild. So a, a friend came out to where I live now, and, and uh, I hadn't seen them. And it was the strangest, because I would see them on, like, Zoom calls and stuff. Then mm-hmm. I saw them in real life, and it was a strange and wonderful experience, I have to tell you.
0: Now we like oh that's a interesting thing I'm talking about like re COVID reunions as opposed to like missing everyone that you care about for months and weeks and years
1: on end. I mean hopefully we can start thinking about that. Yeah. I mean COVID reunions at a distance. Yes. Well, what are we even talking about here? Uh, we're we're sort of jumping right in, but this is uh, this is we haven't seen each other for a year. This is our first podcast recording in. 54 weeks yeah first well it's been 54 weeks since we've seen each other 54 weeks since we were in the podcast car
0: Mm -hmm. and we're not in the podcast car now
1: no and that's sad yeah on the one hand it's very sad because we're not hanging out and recording podcasts and shit talking and all that great stuff but on the other hand you know we're not stuck in traffic
0: that's true There's been no traffic either, though. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you've tried to, like, drive through Toronto recently, but, like, I definitely, like, had to go in for a doctor's appointment and was um, going through at, like, just peak rush hour and made it from the res to downtown Toronto in 50 minutes in rush hour time. It was insanity. It was just the wildest experience to just have absolutely no traffic and no one on the road. It was just, yeah. And
1: if you're still commuting. You're still uh, silver lining, silver lining mm-hmm. for COVID. If you're still a commuter.
0: Yeah, that's true. Um, I'm definitely not commuting. <laughs> definitely. Um, the podcast car and I have been through some stuff, but yeah, it's been a interesting year.
1: We the last podcast we did, we were talking about, okay, well, looks like there's a global pandemic. you know, maybe it's the apocalypse. Uh, guess you'll never see we'll never see each other again or some. I can't remember exactly what we said in the last mm-hmm. podcast, but it's funny because since the pandemic, we both have made some pretty significant life decisions, I guess. Yeah, we're treated from society to be a uh, bush Indian, <laughs> so you know, that's, that's something else that happened.
0: Yeah, that's definitely something that happened. I was actually listening to the last episode of our podcast, which was like something like episode two of season three, like, we barely started another season of the podcast. And we were like, I guess we'll see each other. Like, who knows? Like, NASA's still going on. (laughs) Like, maybe something's happening. And then, boom. Like, classes were supposed to be canceled or schools were supposed to be canceled for two weeks following March break. And that's kind of what had been anticipated. And um, I don't know about other reserve communities, but for Six Nations, like, Six Nations kids have never gone back to school. They have been off this entire year and have not gone back to in-class instruction at any point throughout the pandemic, regardless of the change in numbers of um, what's been happening in the community.
1: Yeah, to think we had all these silly concerns about academic conferences being canceled. I mean, I... You know we did we didn't but uh yeah ghouls and Kansas, my kids have been home i mean six nations went hard though they like they put up concrete barriers you couldn't get in and out of the reserve mm-hmm. i snuck in one time and uh <laughs> at a distance at a safe distance but it, was, it wasn't easy it
0: was
1: yeah the Nations took it seriously a lot of communities yeah. did.
0: yeah a lot of communities took it really seriously and we were reflecting about this i think are anticipating what the issues would be that communities experienced and it's definitely been you know some of those things we talked about have come and happened I think uh communities have been um really supportive and like super like freaking kind to each other and like generous and that's been really um heartening to see but there have been some of those like really freaking like horrible outcomes that like people always feared right like for Six Nations, like, we just recently went through, like, our second wave, and we lost eight people in the community so far from, uh, coronavirus.
1: Yeah, it's no joke.
0: hmm yeah. And we did, but yes, drastically different lives. Last time we talked, or last time we talked about, I guess, the, um uh, podcasted, um, we were talking about stockpiling. Did you end up stockpiling anything? i think i
1: i did but not beyond like 14 days i sort of like picked up a bunch of dry goods and and uh thought you know well it's uh probably wise to be prepared in case something wacky happens and obviously little did i know that the thing that people would be hoarding was going to be toilet paper but uh i never like stocked a giant pantry full of, you know, a year's supply of food or something like that. Although I still continue to think that that's a very good idea.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a good idea. I think about that. Our family did some um, stockpiling. One thing that's like totally unadvisable, but that, that because there's been this like overwhelming like focus on like needing to like do the things to keep the economy going, but not any things to keep your family going. Like my family has, um, you know, sporadically and with an eye to like everyone's risk, like continued to keep seeing each other, which is like, you know, putting in our bubbles of like supporting each other. My um, brothers who have kids who are the same age, like they've had to keep in contact and have that bubble between their houses because they just needed the support because their kids have not gone back to school. Like, they needed people in our extended family to help support their, their kids through the pandemic. And I'm worried about people that, like, haven't had those same kind of opportunities or, or done that same kind of work to, like, maintain a really strict kind of, like, bubble around, like, two households. It's been really hard, yeah. I mean, I think
1: if you look at the data for where the outbreaks continue to be in Toronto, and it's typically in neighbourhoods with... Larger families and families that support one another in the ways that you describe, because, you know, people got to work. And, uh, you know, that's sort of a consequence. I don't know if it's really been talked about too much during the pandemic. I guess you sort of hear about, oh, the pandemic's hitting racialized and low income people more than it's affecting, you know, your typical white, wealthy Canadian. But uh, I think part of that is is a result of of the necessity you know the necessity of of being together to support each other which is just required in daily life but the consequence of that is is uh you know more covid
0: yeah so tell me a little bit more about this reaction that you've had to covid like obviously we're not like chilling or commuting to toronto and like recording the podcast but like how has your life changed in the past year hayden
1: (laughs) Uh, All right. Well, that was that was a transition. That was uh, yeah. I mean, where do I begin? I decided to uh, move out to my grandmother's territory, uh, just on the border of Alderville First Nation, on a pretty sizable piece of land that I spent uh, all the savings that I had on, um, and uh, decided to build a off. Grid cabin uh, that's 220, 230 square feet, and live in it with my family and my dog. Uh, and yeah, so that's that's what I've been doing for the last year. I've been building. I've been trying to do as much hunting as I can. I uh, try to. i to this week. I'm finishing building uh, our greenhouse and wrapping up ma- uh, harvesting zinzibarquad or maple maple syrup for the, for the year. So, um, yeah, I rarely wear a mask, uh, these days because I just don't have to, I, I I rarely see other people. I, um, it's in some ways been a really wonderful experience amid this obviously awful time. Um, but yeah, I, I, I have bad internet. I I don't typically wear clean clothes. Uh the pump posting toilet. Uh, I take showers, you know, twice a week. Should I be sharing this stuff
0: on this podcast? I don't know. I don't know.
1: <laughs> um But you know, it's it's fun.
0: Yeah. I was gonna say our like you know, for radically different circumstances our are probably day to day is probably very similar. I mean like I'm not gonna go uh, too much into specific details as much as you would uh, for very different reasons. You know, you might like you're a pretty private person you, and you tend not to overshare about your personal life. I mean, I definitely um, got arrested in September, <laughs> very uh, kind of early on. July 19th in my community, um, a, a land reclamation and direct action started. Uh, 1492 land back lane. And um, it definitely impacted our community and, and me personally. And um, it was a, a really uh, wild kind of thing. And so I don't know, to make a very long story short, I too seem to have found myself living in an off grid uh, cabin with solar and heat and um, <laughs> mine's much smaller than yours, though. It's about 10 by 10. And uh, have been uh, sticking it out in, um, call it a small home <laughs> situation. I think that my path to bush
1: life is uh, a little a little bougier than yours. Because of the lack of, you know, running water. Um,
0: I don't know. Do you have a TV?
1: I have, I have computers that run on solar power.
0: Oh, we have television. We have like cable tv we have like an antenna we have like full cooking and it's pretty it's pretty bougie around here i'm jealous yeah i have battery operated lights and like that have like a little remote to them and like on a dimmer and stuff we've we bougie out pretty hard here uh we had some friends visit from uh, the Kitigan ZB Moose Moratorium that came and checked out how we had like kind of embedded ourselves into the land and the space here, and they called it a uh, Landback Avenue instead of Landback Lane. <laughs> <laughs> Landback Boulevard. Yeah, <laughs> but no, I've definitely spent the past year kind of thinking about the the critical space we're in when it comes to like deconstructing privilege and engaging in anti-colonialism and what does that mean to have like your personal praxis you know change and evolve given the like radically kind of uh, upsetting and kind of difficult place a lot of our communities have found themselves in you know finding you know dealing with the pandemic like having to deal with like not being prioritized and kind of like the policy systems and structures that have been in place, disappointing our communities. And so it's been um, interesting. And I keep saying interesting, but it's been just like, I can't believe this is happening. Like, I can't believe this is like what we're dealing with. This is what we're kind of having to focus on. And one of the things I've been doing is like, I've had a immense privilege and access to some pretty critical, like historical documents from um, our Pondichoni Confederacy Chiefs Council, seeing some of their like archival material and going through and just like seeing how our leaders of the past have argued and considered and fought for and, you know, did all this work and organizing and activism and whatever for, um, for us, right? As the children who inherited the, you know, the benefits of their work. And the, you know, I think we talked about them before like the historic parallels but like the historic parallels but also the idea that like we are still a people who are actively colonized and going through a process of colonialism colonialism that it's just like extremely extremely frustrating and it's kind of put me in a place where i'm thinking about like well what does that mean then what does it mean about Me, my actions, the things I'm willing to do and the work I'm willing to undertake, the hours I'm willing to put in to change things in the same way that, like, our ancestors sacrificed so much so that we could still have kind of like culture and access and language to enjoy today.
1: Yeah, I think that the conversation around historical cycles is really interesting. One, and there's the word interesting again, but notwithstanding your own sort of personal challenges being in it, but it's, you have to wonder about our relatives and our ancestors who were doing a similar type of work, uh, whether it was advocating for rights or whether it was like trying to, you know, push for a certain way of living and acting in the world that might have challenged colonial perceptions of what good assimilated Indians could or shouldn't do. Like, I I think about those kinds of conversations that they had, like what was it like a generation ago fighting for, you know, Anishinaabe, what was it like two generations ago? What was it like a hundred years ago? Like did those, did our ancestors have the same battles that we seem to be having today? Still were they were they more intense and yet like they kept pushing. And obviously it resulted in some, in some, uh, you know, some well, a great deal of difficulty for many of them, but it does seem, in a lot of ways, that this uh, just sort of repeats itself in that regard. And you've got yeah. to, okay, is change like we all want rapid transformational change, but change just seems like so painfully incrementally slow. So I don't know. Maybe like, are there areas where you've seen? um the movement and the work that you've been doing in the last year
0: um no I think that things are super like slow and like not moving as fast as we would think they are and I think that like one of the things that has always like frustrated me about like policy and practice and like research is that a lot of these like great ideas and how to deal with like social issues in our modern times are like old ideas you know they're talking about like policies and implementing policies that were developed in like the 60s and the 70s that have never fully been implemented or realized things like universal childcare, or universal basic income right like these are ideas that have been all around for a long time but have never really been implemented and I was reading this like government report from like 1835 where um Haudenosaunee people had had um, trustees appointed by the crown and the Haudenosaunee were raising these concerns that like all of this money that was supposed to be held in trust was being uh, misspent or unaccounted for and we weren't getting access to kind of like the resources that we needed through our trust funds and there was this belief that you know the trustees were misspending the money and so the government had done a forensic audit of the trust funds and found that like of the of the Six Nations Trust at the time, um, which was supposed to be around twelve million dollars, that about four million of it had been misappropriated. 4.6 million dollars. So around 40% of the money was just like gone and had been used to, you know, in these like shady investments, things like Osgood Hall and like, you know building roads and loans to towns that never got repaid. And it was like something like the equivalent of, you know, in today's resources around uh, $1.2 trillion, which was like, you know, using the like bad math of like internet searches, but just this like astronomical amount of money. Right. And I think about like, so they did this study, they did this report, and then the report was released or done in January. And by October of the same year, you know, the trustees had been fired. The trust fund was restructured. um They had kind of like changed where people were reporting. You know, some of the people that were there, you know, were had um been kicked out of the department in disgrace and, and all that kind of stuff. Right. So it's like. Man, if you we see the kinds of like historic parallel today of like this kind of like massive misspending of like multiple millions and billions of dollars, say for things like children and youth services and Jordan's principal. And you see this like corruption that's happened. It seems like even in historic times where we assume things were super slow, that things moved faster than like they were like taking ships and sending friggin mail through ships to the king in freaking england and they were still able to make decisions faster than we are today like that to me is insane <laughs> like it's just so like and like not to, to hasn't the health or whatever but like it's just it's just so like frustrating to think that like because we have modern technologies that like human behavior has changed in any way or somehow become more productive it's just really like frustrating
1: yeah i mean you throw in to the mix, the divide and conquer that we've had to deal with for all these years. And, uh, I guess you're right. Like it's, it's a, it's a trope in indigenous circles that decision-making takes long because you have to do it by consensus. Um, but then how do you form a consensus to make a decision when there's so much division that has been sowed by, By colonial officials over the years it's uh yeah the the pandemic certainly you know in some ways you think like okay the first wave of the pandemic and like first nations jumped into action and they put up those concrete barriers and they you know kicked all the white people out and protected everyone from the first wave um and i guess that was less the case in in the second wave and uh who knows what the third wave will bring but um you know, in some ways you've seen that sort of rapid response, but then in other ways, it's just sort of like, you know, very clearly status quo politics. And like, in my own community, we have been without an election for now a year um, because we were scheduled to have a, a band council election rate right as the pandemic sort of shut everything down and, and then you know the Department of Indian Service Indigenous Services, was like, "Okay, uh, you got to proceed with your elections." No, 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 wait. Okay, you can delay six months. So, all right, we'll give you an extra year. So my community took the entire year, and and now like a year later, it's just sort of squabbling over, you know, which election code do we use, and um, you know, the same old usual suspects are running for, for chief and council, and and outside of just the policy perspective, the one that you're describing about you know, how, how some of these older ideas are getting purchased or not getting purchased again. It's just like, I I don't know, maybe our individual experiences of like actual rapid
0: transformation
1: in our lives makes change in our broader circles, the slow pace of change in our broader circles, more frustrating. Um, I don't know. And, And that's not to say that like we've taken a different path that should be you know recognized or everyone should do but but uh i think if anything the pandemic is characterized by these two tracks of change like on the one hand so much seems to be happening and so much has happened like when it comes to politics or the pandemic or itself um and then on the other hand things seem to be so moving so slow uh It's a weird dynamic, a really weird dynamic that messes with my sense of time.
0: Oh, yeah. I have absolutely no sense of time anymore. Like, I just don't. Time is like a social construct. Like, I always joke, like, time is a social construct. But time is, like, definitely a social construct. Like, it's it's just, like, what day is it? If I didn't have, like, meetings or, like, phone alerts, I wouldn't know what day it is. And, like, because you spend so much time, like outside on the land interacting with like nature but just necessarily like being outside and spending a lot of time outside it's literally like I feel more aware of the moon cycle now than I ever had of in my life and I'm more aware of the past like you know movements of stars and the moon than I am of day to day like what is it Tuesday today I don't know but the full moon is going to be in three days like I'm more aware of that kind of thing And it's just been, like, super interesting. I should also say, like, I definitely, like, when back in September when I was arrested, I had, like, resigned from my job at the time. And so, like, literally, like, my last day of work was, like, Friday and I was arrested, like, the Thursday before my last day of work. And, like, I just haven't gone back to work. I just, like, have not been working in the past, like, seven months-ish. Six months? I don't know how long it's been. And I've just been doing like freelance gigs and things like that too. And I'm just like completely entered into like the anti-capitalist lifestyle that I've always dreamed of. It's been amazing.
1: That will definitely help abolish your sense of time as a social social construct. But
0: mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I I think my sense of time has been affected by, you know, what we were talking about earlier in terms of like the, the slow and fast pace of life under the pandemic but I mean I agree with you absolutely like for the first time in my life you know I am consciously looking at how much light the moon casts every night and watching it sort of like whip around the horizon I never realized that like the, the how quickly the movement of the moon and the earth uh, was in the, in, the, in the night sky and the daylight the amount of like just praying for more sun and in uh, January and then slowly watching the sun like higher and higher on the horizon. And I mean, the insects that you start to see as, as spring comes the flies coming up out of the grass and just like the maple syrup season and time you start measuring your, your life or I've started measuring my life in, in, in different, uh, registers, you know, I'm, I'm measuring my life in, in, uh, in when when the sap runs and measuring my life and in uh the hours of of the day before and after the sun comes up and goes down it's uh it's a pretty pretty amazing thing uh and everybody should do it
0: yeah and cursing the internet connection the internet connection is so bad oh my gosh i
1: never ever thought in my life that I would be hoping for Elon Musk to succeed at anything.
0: Yo, the the savior of the res, Elon Musk. Like that's what everyone everyone is like, Elon Musk, save us. We need your satellite internet.
1: Give me a McDisc, whatever they're called, dishy McDiscos.
0: I want one. <laughs> yeah. Did you sign up for it? I, basically everyone I know have signed up has signed up for it.
1: For it. Darling, dish
0: Oh yeah, my brother and my cousin were on it. Like my techie geek cousins, and my brother were just like, "Yes, sign me up. First day, here's my money." Like.
1: <laughs> well, here's the question: Once we're all connected to high-speed internet, will, we'll, uh, we'll, will, will we actually start to see those, those changes materialize faster, or maybe not? Maybe not. I yeah, my internet bill is is, damn ridiculous.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. I pay so much money for my phone. It's stupid.
1: At least I have an excuse, you know, and I can't Sorry, I can't join the Zoom today. I'm out of the internet for the month.
0: <laughs> At least you're just honest about that. I just try to like skim like ways to like work around it and just pretend that like, "Oh yeah, I definitely have like access to internet," but I definitely don't. And like I've talked about it a lot cuz you know, I'm still doing like CBC commentary, whatever, right? And like when the pandemic started, like I had to like live stream from my car and had to use like my phone data and get in my car and drive to town to use the Internet. And like that's just been the reality for a lot of folks is like working around it. And like the Internet issue has been huge for like the freaking kids on the reserve that like don't have Internet in their homes and like don't have enough um, data coverage to be able to even use like hotspots as an option. And so like for a lot of kids, they've been doing paper packages at home, having to be self-taught by one of their parents or like an auntie or an uncle for like 54 months or 54 weeks. It feels like 54 months, but like for over a year, like that's just been like the reality for kids. And then for like people like my own nieces who are in language immersion and don't have fluent parents at home, like it's just been so tough to try and teach them. And my sister-in-law is trying to teach herself language and all those kinds of things. And it's just been, yeah, it's been a real struggle.
1: Yeah. I, I think it was interesting a couple, I guess it was a couple of months ago now, then people started talking about, you know, yet another silver lining of the pandemic. Like maybe this will mean more local community based, smaller size, you know, parents involved in, in, in schools. Like that's the sort of decolonial education model that people have been talking about for years and years. Um, And then, yeah, it didn't, it never really materialized, did it? Like it was just this opportunity, but, um, Mm -hmm. you know, we talk about capitalism, like parents are just like forced to go back to work. And oftentimes, you know, I talk to some of my friends and it's like, especially during the times where kids were, were um, doing school from home in Ontario. It was just like, okay, check in with your teacher for a couple of minutes a day. And then, uh, you know, sit on a screen for six hours um, and maybe read a book. Like that's, that's not really decolonial education, you know, but that's sort of how it's, how it's played out,
0: I think. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So we're in the midst of the pandemic. It's still going on. Um, it's not over. There is some like stuff happening on the horizon, though, like um for Ontario at least, like Indigenous people being prioritized in phase one of vaccine rollout. That's been very interesting. Are you getting the coronavirus vaccine? You already got your shot.
1: I got one shot. I got I got a shot. So uh, yeah, I think I went back and forth on this. I felt really strange about getting uh, dose of the vaccine when like old folks I know hadn't got theirs. And then I was talking to a friend and they're like, if you're being offered the vaccine and, uh, you know, you're a treaty Indian, like you 100% should take this opportunity because, you know, it's, it's, it's not only a, a matter of like protecting yourself and maybe even helping protect, uh, uh, other people around you. Although I know that the virus can still spread, you can still catch it and still spread it. but mm-hmm. You know, there's no there's no real choice if you're if you're being offered it. I mean, I don't I don't harbor any sort of conspiracy theories like some of the ones that go around on, among my cousins. The the viruses, you know, we're we the virus is being tested on all the Indians to make sure it's safe. But uh, yeah, I think my only hesitation was like this feeling of guilt that I was getting it early. You know, maybe yeah. that's colonial baggage or something. I'm doing.
0: I mean, it's not like you're pushing elders out of the way to get in line for the vaccine. Yeah, I think for myself, like I definitely went and made sure that like, you know, the older people in my life, if they were wanting to get the vaccine, that they were signed up, you know, and then because I have like, complex health conditions, you know, signed myself up and then like, you know, people that were, you know, vulnerable around me making sure that they were registered and then like, you know, walking them through the online registration process, our band has set up. And then like, yeah, I got my vaccine a few days ago and I'm going to get it. But yeah, I definitely know people that aren't going to that are kind of like, you know, what do you call it? Vaccine hesitancy. They're kind of just like waiting. They're unsure if they're going to get it or not. And they're like, yeah, and they're still on the fence about it and haven't signed up for a shot yet.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think there, yeah, there are people in my life that feel, way, and I, and I, and I, to some degree do, do understand it. But I mean, the question that I'm sort of grappling with is uh, like how, you know, the, the sort of anti-colonial conspiratorial side of me, which sort of wanes uh, as time goes on is like, okay, wow. Well, why are Indians at the front of the line here? Like, the federal government's not doing us any favours. What's going on? Um, but, you know, you realise that this is the provincial government, and it, it I guess it's sort of hard to square. Like, it, it's its difficult to really explain how we got to the front of the line in settler-colonial Canada, you know?
0: hmm Yeah. That's been, like, kind of a, a shock to just see that, like, some you know, you, you especially for like policy people and like academics who like do the study, do the research, do this lot of organizing, have like cultivated these relationships of influence within the system to actually see this kind of like, this is the logical thing though, right? This is like the, like talking about vulnerable populations, high risk populations, communities that don't have the necessary infrastructure to respond to the pandemic, like certainly prioritizing indigenous communities especially in the remote north for the vaccine is much more financially like or much less financially burdensome on the province than it is to um actually give them the necessary health infrastructure to respond to like outbreaks right there's like a cal- there's like a calculus in it but then you see this kind of like fruit like this you know this like idea of like oh this actually did happen and it happened in Ontario, and, and that's really cool because there's so many Indigenous people that live in Ontario. But then you look at, like, some other provinces that, like, didn't make the same decision, and you're like, okay, well, what's going on? What is it then?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a really – that's a – I mean, part of me has, is hesitant to believe that the government, provincial or otherwise, has that kind of foresight to do the economic calculation. Like, it's more cost-effective for us to do this now than deal with the consequences later because the consequences later will would- – in all likelihood just be neglected, (laughs) which, you know, they are in any case of chronic or acute uh, diseases and viruses among indigenous people. But I mean, that is one explanation. I mean, and the other one, which I sort of want to subscribe to, but I'm also doubtful as the, as the reality is that, you know, what about all those communities that have signed treaties with medicine, chest clauses, with pestilence clauses, you know, it's like, help in time of need. So, you know, now is the need. And like in a country that had integrity, you would actually start to see First Nations with those medicine chests and pestilence clauses get the vaccine first. And that would be like, whoa, holy, like Canada's actually honoring treaties. And then you realize that in the provinces where those clauses actually do exist,
0: (laughs) those First Nations
1: are like at the back of the line. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, equally pretty fucked up.
0: Yeah. So there's still work to do.
1: <laughs> yeah, obviously.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> obviously. And speaking of work, I have to finish all the work that I well, finish. Continue to to, to work on my my uh my off grid homestead here. What is what's the Indian version of homestead?
0: Longhouse?
1: <laughs> no. Come on. I mean, what's the Anishinaabe version?
0: Mm, I don't know. What did you guys live in? Teepees? <laughs>
1: uh, there's no wigwams in around here, okay? Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Anyway, what's the... Come on. There's, there's got to be some term. Like.
0: Oh, my gosh. I can't even think of a good joke. I don't hang around with enough niche people anymore with frequency to think of any good niche jokes. The problem
1: is of not doing a podcast in a year. We've lost our edge. We don't. <laughs> we don't make fun of each other on a weekly basis. Our Our wit has been reduced to jokes of like composting toilets. Like, it's not
0: good. The, the struggle. The
1: is not good. struggle. Pandemic has not good. been good for for the joke.
0: Oh my gosh! I think I've actually like embraced some of my humor but I'm just like hanging out with Haudenosaunee people. This is the longest in my adult life that I have been on the res. And it's why, like, I just like, have just hanging out with Haudenosaunee people all day, every day. And it's just like, wow, this is like in community. And it's just so just like, I, you know, maybe sometimes I'll talk to an Algonquin person because we're like, have friends with like folks in KZ, but like, and like you and like, I don't think I talked to any other Anishinaabek people besides you. It's wild.
1: Well, I mean, yeah. And, and so you just, you're surrounded by Mohawks. This is how, how I used to be. And now I've been liberated from that particular curse that was cast upon me.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Okay. Uh, all right. Well, we'll, we'll get better. We'll see maybe if we can see if we can do this again. Uh, see if anybody listens to this and is interested in commiserating with us over our year of pandemic lives and who knows maybe there will be more red road podcasts
0: yeah still on the red road not in a car
1: still on the red road and still tough on the red road still a grind even though we're not in okay i'll
0: talk to you again soon aiden okay bye You've been listening to the Red Road podcast created by Courtney Sky and Hayden King, sounding audio editing by Humble Man Recording. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, Google Play, SoundCloud and iTunes. I've been driving in my Indian car to the pound of the wheels in my brain.
1: My dash is
0: dusty.